Cad and welcome to the Crime Chat. I'm your forensic femme fatale and it says so here on my cup. <laughs> you are. Natalie is your true crimatic connoisseur. That's right and we're just two girls that recently took a DNA test and it turns out Cat, that we are 100% those bitches who are obsessed with dark crimes, evil minds, <laughs> and occasionally the other known. I just took a DNA test <laughs> Here's your disclaimer, chatters. Listen, don't sue us. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of potentially violent and quite horrific scenarios Mm. today. Your listener discretion is advised. Yes, you have been warned. And before we get into today's crime chat, what have you done? Look at this. (gasps) So Tamara is one of our chatters out there. And she is amazing. She made us these plates. And they have our picture on it, and it says Crime Chat with Nat Cat Podcast. It's got, like, crime scene. It is the coolest thing ever. So, Tamara, thank you so much, sweetheart. We love them. And I've got mine set up, like, on a little display here behind me. So, for my background. I love it. (laughs) Looks very spooky. And she, this is all resin. This is her design. It is. And she added fairy lights in the resin, Mm -hmm. so... Just love it's it. It's gorgeous. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Tamara. You're amazing, girl. Yes. So we started watching Inventing Anna. I see what you mean about her accent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. What's wrong with it? Where does it it's come just from? It's weird. It's off. It's off. Yeah. Yeah. But really good. We haven't finished it yet. And I was talking to a coworker of mine, and I was like, mm. the girl that plays the journalist was in my girl when she was a little girl yes and i can't i don't remember her name but what's her vivian her, her last name is pete okay it's something pete but she plays the character vivian she plays as a journalist right yeah she plays she's had like maybe 10 years ago she was like one of that she was like the it girl for like yeah. that hot sidekick actress so yeah yeah but i was like it made me actually want to get back into journalism a little bit and i was like wait a minute i'm in journalism i have you a are. podcast yeah, that's right <laughs> We're journalists. We are. We're we're paddlists. We're journalists that drink while we tell stories. (laughs) And we make it fun. (laughs) And then there's something that came up that I want to start watching on Prime, Amazon Prime, called Outer Range. Have you seen any adverts for it? No. So it's, you know who Josh Brolin is? That name sounds very familiar. Yeah, he's he's been around forever. Okay. it has a little alien twist to it. You have really? to look it up. Look at Outer Range. I haven't seen anything of it yet. I've, the people I've talked to about it, they say it's good. It, right. And there's only like two or three episodes out. They're not doing like a binge watch thing, but you have to, it, like one comes out, Okay. I think every Friday. So, yeah. All right. I'll give it a shot. Uh, I, yeah. I, and that's on Netflix, right? No, no, no. That's on Prime. Prime. Amazon okay. Prime. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I started watching. It's on Prime. It's called From. Have you watched it? No, but it looks good. It's really fucking good. It's, is it good? Yeah, okay. That's good. And that's on Amazon Prime too? Yes. And it's a okay. weird, like, it's one of those, like, it starts out with a family driving down the road in an RV and they're lost and they're like, all right, they're in the middle of the hills and driving down these weird roads, windy roads. And then they cross, they get to this little town where every every building looks like a shack and then the the sheriff's office looks like this really beefed up building out of the blue mm-hmm. and they're passing that and the wife is like just pull over and ask for directions just and he <laughs> he finally does it he gets out of the car and the sheriff looks at him who is the main character by the way the sheriff is the main character okay 
And the guy's like, listen, I'm trying to get here and I I lost my way because I, I there's no turnoff from this road. And the sheriff looks at him, he's like, just drive up, continue driving up the road and you'll see. It started like that. Oh, and wow. All I got to say from that point on, I'm like, okay. It just, it's, it's pretty good. It's good. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That yeah. is, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We got some cool things we need to yes. to chat about. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I'm going to say we're getting ready to go. By the time this podcast comes out, we'll already have been there and been back. But we're getting ready to go to uh, our son's Navy Technical School graduation mm-hmm. in San Antonio. So really excited. Nice. Congratulations. He's doing amazing. He's doing amazing. He's graduating as a corpsman in the Navy, and then he is going to have some advanced training with the Marine Corps. Does he have a so. nickname? Do you call him a nickname? Well, I, I called him Monkey for the longest time. He was my monkey. Okay, congratulations, Monkey. That's <laughs> <laughs> like my nickname. Mama's Monkey. My, my, my little monkey. Aww. He was my monkey. Yeah. And then my other son, his name is Quentin, and we, I, he was my Q-Bear. Aww. Monkey and Q-Bear. Yeah. That's so cute. (laughs) Well, you know. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah. So, we've got crazy thing to talk about today. Yeah. The story that we're going to go over happened to be on Friday the 13th in October. Mm Mm-hmm. So, we decided we would talk a little bit about some Friday the 13th stuff, and then we'll get into the crime chat. So, you want to kick it off with... uh... Yeah. So, I have... So, Kat, like, I... You told me about your story, and I have not read it, Mm -hmm. as usual, but I figured I'll start off, kick it off, with some fun Friday the 13th facts or revelations that we know about that are familiar with us, and... And the reason why we're doing Friday the 13th is because this comes out on May 14th, which is a Saturday, which means the day before... Mm -hmm. It's Friday the 13th. That's right. (laughs) That's right. So, and you know something? So there are some Friday the 13th facts that I did not know about. Mm -hmm. So did you know that Friday the 13th happens at least once a year or three times a year? So either once or three? Yes. Wow. I didn't know that. No. Uh -uh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So how how many, we have to count how many 13s we've had in this year. I don't even know. I didn't didn't look that up. I don't think we've had any. We've got Friday the 13th in May. Okay. All right. So maybe we're in a one year. Maybe. Cycle. Cycle. (laughs) All right. Well, Friday the 13th or the fear of Friday the 13th is a real thing Mm -hmm. and it is called, and please chatters, bear with me right now because medical terminology is not my thing. (laughs) Um, it's called trixadicophobia. Trixadicophobia. You want to try that? Tricky dicky phobia. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky dicky. That's right. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> tricky dicky. <laughs> uh, this affects millions of people across the world and supposedly has major loss in business uh-huh. and for, for a lot of industries. I guess people just don't go out of their house during these days. They really like have this... S- superstitious to the core yeah like yeah well wow i know that is a diagnosable like that that's people are diagnosed with the fear of friday the 13th holy i know well tricky i don't know tricky dicky phobia tricky dicky phobia (laughs) i like that much better so now let me ask you a question what do you think is the root of all this fear i i Without knowing what you're talking about, I would mm. think the number 13 because there's like hotels mm. that don't have a 13th floor. 
Yeah. Is that close? Well, that is definitely a result of our fear. So, like, basically there's no one answer to why we're so afraid of the number 13. There's no... Mm -hmm. A lot of people will speculate and say that it goes back to the beginning of the calendar when the uh, uh, Mesopotamia people started, like, kind of doing their mathematical... They did, like, this... What is that called when you have the knots on a string and you're counting... It's called something. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. You know, you you still, I had them at school where you're like moving yeah. a dot over to, to count. To count, yeah. It's called yeah. something. I don't. Chatters, give me, I, I need to know that. I didn't look it up. But they were the people that started kind of like putting math and applying it to the universe. Right, right, right. They realized that 12 was the perfect number. 12, mm-hmm. there's 12 months in the year. 12 mm-hmm. was just a very well-rounded number. Mm-hmm. Um, so 13 got a lot of pa- bad press real early, really early on because they were like, where does 13 fall in? Where does it, why is it there? Why, yeah. it, it just, it's bad luck. Yeah. But the history of 13, you know, I, that's like the, that's a report or that's a story that I read about like one of the earliest identifications of the number 13 or the day, the 13th day in the month. Mm-hmm. But fear about it, of course, is rooted in more recorded history that we can kind of and I'm going to get into that okay so because there's no I'll be honest with you there's there is no one answer to this history I I I googled it and it took me all over the place I'm like okay give me one solid reason there is no solid reason it's a combination of things and you know some people are just crazy but yeah yeah (laughs) here are some of those crazy occurrences after the number 13 so now Kat what does airlines like Continental Air France and Ryanair have in common with office buildings. Mm, well, probably 13. They don't have a 13. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I remember working on Madison Avenue when I was younger. Going up the building, like, going in the elevator, I never realized it because it was just so normal mm-hmm. to not to see the number 13. Mm-hmm. There was no 13 floor. Right. So, you went from 12 to 14. Right. But, like, have you ever been in a, a building or a hotel that didn't have a 13th floor. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. Yeah. Oh, my God. And wasn't there a movie about that? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's one movie with John Malkovich where it's becoming John Malkovich. And oh, they yeah, really yeah. focus on the 13th floor of where you can find him. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then there was another movie with Jim Carrey that did the number 13. Okay. Yeah. They're both good. Yeah. But but even in an airplane. I guess I never realized that for airplane rows. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. People like Winston Churchill, who many considered a very rational historical figure, mm-hmm. would not sit in the row 13 in the theater that he would frequent once a week. There were mm-hmm. uh, 13 disciples at the Last Supper, which mm-hmm. took place on the 13th day of the month, and the crucifixion took place occurred on the Friday the 13th. Did it really? Yeah. How do we know that? I, you know what? I, I don't know how we know that, but I know when I researched it, it was it was yeah, there. And I'm like, interesting. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. 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 So now some people believe that it stems from a particularly bad Friday the 13th that happened in 1307, mm-hmm. where King Philip IV ordered the arrest of countless Knights of Templar. He ordered them to be tortured and burned at the stake, and it was just... This is pretty historical. I mean, mm-hmm. if you ever research the Knights of Templar, this day is pretty... Epic. We I think we have a we have a movie. We don't we have a movie. What was that movie? Dan Brown with the the Holy Grail when he was searching for a, the 
The Da Vinci Code? The Da Vinci Code. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So in the Da Vinci Code, they ran around like Italy searching for the Knights yes. Templar. Yes. And yes. Uh, okay. they would have like these uh, plots which didn't have bodies. They would they would just have these statues that yeah. looked like it was a, a tomb. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, they were all killed within 1307. Like it's pretty freaky that that's okay i guess i never really realized it and i I haven't seen that movie in forever anyways it's a great movie yeah that's a great movie and you know what it just leads me to the the ultimate conclusion which i believe in women rule the world so (laughs) um okay so in the 1900s a man named thomas lawson wrote a book that actually was called friday the 13th now, in this book, he was, the main character was a stockbroker, mm-hmm. uh, and he was very superstitious, and he wrote about how because of Friday the 13th, the Wall Street crashed, and everybody was devastated, and, you know. Okay. Yeah, so people, and that book was a big, big hit. Yeah. Now, our psychological associations are partially to blame, sure. because, I mean, let's face it, according to the psychologist Stuart Weiss, Superstition is the tool that enables the brain to feel that it's all about control. Mm -hmm. When people are faced with a situation in which the outcome is beyond our control, superstition kicks in. Yes, yeah. We actually were just talking about this during Mothman and Area 51 Uh because people were so set on believing. Yes. Because they were were superstitious. They were like, well... The Mothman, if he shows up, then something bad's going to happen. And then it became, it took a life of its own. Yeah, exactly. Like, which is a lot like this. Yeah. However, the number 13 is a lucky number. In Italy, Friday the 17th is the unlucky date, not the 13th. That's weird. Okay. I know. And in China, the number four is considered very unlucky. Huh. Science eventually weighed in. And according to various studies, Friday 13th shows no increase in surgical complications, nat- natural disasters, or accidents. So, Well, we'll get into an accident that happened on Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> but and, besides this one. <laughs> and included some natural disasters. Yes. So... Kat, you're going to love this next one because you and I would be a member of this club. Okay. Did you know there was a club called the 13 Club? Mm -hmm. And these members dedicate themselves to debunking superstitions. Ooh, yeah. So it's a pretty high-ranking club. So 13 members of the community, which normally includes governors, judges, and men of high-ranking military status... And some U.S. presidents, including Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, Teddy. Yeah, Teddy were (laughs) part of this club. This club was formed in the 1880s by Captain William Fowler, a Civil War vet who stated that the sole purpose of this group was to break every superstitious rule out there. The 13 men would gather together on Friday the 13th, walk under ladders, break some mirrors. Yep, yep. Keep umbrellas open in the house. Yep. And just spill salt, you know, just uh, recklessly. But that sounds like a pretty cool club. I mean, yeah, I can, that would that, be fun. That, I can get into that. We should research that. Yeah. We should, we should do that. We should set our own club yeah. like that. Yeah. Definitely. But as you can see, the bottom line is there we have no idea as, as to the exact cause of why Friday 13th is just so <laughs> what we think is unlucky. Yeah. Um, but we can agree that just the idea of it took a life of its own. 
So, like Mothman, like Area 51, mm-hmm. it just, you know, speculation, superstition, it created yeah. this whole narrative that we're like, yeah. you know what? We don't know enough about it, but we're not going to fuck with it. So we're just yeah. going to. And that's just some fun fact. That's super interesting. I think I've heard of that Captain William Fowler. Oh. I mean, it must have been something that I read or a movie I watched or something. You must have been in it. But the name sounds super familiar. But anyways, yeah, let's get together mm-hmm. on Friday the 13th. Let's do it. And, you know, we'll just cause some ruckus. Yeah. Let's just let's cause some ruckus. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's quite the ruckus that we're going to go over into our into our crime chat today. But before we do, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Yes. Today's segment has been sponsored by our friends at Fatal Beauty, LLC, a vegan, cruelty-free, eco-friendly, women-owned, and Indian-inspired beauty line. They are celebrating three years of being committed to quality and the only place that you need to look for great and affordable cosmetics and accessories to include eyeshadows, lips, lashes, brushes, you name it, and they have it. And they also want us to remind you that you are beautiful, unique, powerful, strong, radiant, and brilliant. Never forget that. You can shop at www.shopfatalbeauty.com using our code CRIMECHAT for 20% off your entire purchase. That's www.shopfatalbeauty.com to earn your discount today. Okay, we're back. So Kat, I am so ready for your Friday the 13th story, which I know is a dark story. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. Yeah. So, and it's not really crime related. I know this is a crime chat, mm-hmm. but it is quite the horrendous circumstances and situation to be in. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be talking about the real story behind the 1993 movie Alive. Do you remember it? Yes. Yeah. I do. Oh. So the true story is called, quote, The Miracle of the Andes. And to the extent of what these people had to go through in order to survive. Mm. So, uh, yes. Picture this. October 13th, 1972. I wasn't born yet. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) So the real story did happen uh, on Friday the 13th. So you're on a plane, part of a Uruguayan rugby team headed to a rugby match in Chile. Focusing on their upcoming game, most of the passengers weren't too alarmed when the captain announced they were going to have some turbulence. I mean, sometimes, you know, uh-huh. you get a little bump and the captain puts the fasten your seatbelt signs on and says, all right, everybody, go ahead and have a seat. Uh, we're going to have some turbulence here, right? Nobody thought twice about it. So while flying over the South American Andes Mountains between Chile and Argentina, a 19-year-old medical student named Roberto Canessa heard another passenger ask, hey, aren't we flying too close to those mountains? Then suddenly, the wing of the aircraft clipped at the side of the mountain and what would come after would turn out to be such a crucial mistake by the co-pilot in an attempt to make it to santiago chile he tried to maintain a high altitude but it was no match for the mountain peaks in an attempt to avoid the peaks the pilot tilted and maneuvered the plane so much that it was in a near like vertical position which made the engines fail so what goes up must must come come down. down The plane then began to fall from the sky, and as the engine sputtered and attempted to restart, the plane impacted the mountain. Only 16 of the 45 lives on board would make it out alive. During the following 72 days, the survivors suffered numerous hardships, including exposure, starvation, an avalanche, losing 
their friends and family members and resorted to cannibalism. Oh, if you just, just to kind of like put that in perspective. Yeah. 72 days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's longer than most subscriptions. Like that (laughs) is a long fucking time. And for somebody to actually say, hey, we're too close to the mountains. Think think how close. close. Yeah. For, uh, For your wing to clip the mountain, how close do you have to, you have to. Like you're on top of the mountain. You're in the mountain. Yep. That's... So what happened, right? What happened to the Mm. Uruguayan Flight 571? Why did it take so long for the survivors to get rescued? How did they become known as the Andes Mountain Cannibals? This is what we're going to get into. You ready? Yes. Passengers, fasten your seatbelt. Let's take a ride. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so the pilots. Colonel Julio Cesar Ferraras... (laughs) <laughs> was an experienced Air Force pilot who had a total of 5,117 flying hours. He was accompanied by co-pilot Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagara. This was actually a training flight for Lagara, mm-hmm. who mistakenly at the time thought that they had reached Curico. I'm not so sure if I'm saying that right, but that's the capital of the Curico province part of the region, kind of in the area that they were going to. So he thought that they were there, despite the instruments on the aircraft telling him otherwise. He still thought he was there. So he contacted Santiago, Chile, the air traffic control, and said, hey, we're going to be in Curico in about a minute. The flight time from their current location of where they actually were to where Curico is is normally 11 minutes. But only three minutes later, the pilot told the Santiago air traffic controller, we're going to start to descend. And they were like, okay. Unaware of where they actually were in the mountains, still over the Andes, they did authorize them to descend to 11,500 feet. A later analysis of their flight path found the pilot not only turned too early, but turned at a wrong heading. So the heading of 14 degrees when they should have turned at a heading at 30 degrees. Canessa, the medical student, recalled that the aircraft started to like move and shake so much that when it was nearly vertical, he recalled it actually beginning to stall and then mm-hmm. shake. And then in order to gain altitude, the pilot did everything he could to try to get, because they had sunk so much into the mountain range that it was very difficult for them to get out. Right, okay. So the crash. As the aircraft descended, severe turbulence tossed the aircraft up and down all over, right? The plane hit a downdraft, and that caused the plane to drop like several hundred feet out of the clouds. So you, I don't know if you've ever had a downdraft or you've been flying where it like all of a sudden drops a lot. Have you ever felt had that feeling? That's a scary mm. feeling. Not not to the – I'm pretty sure not to that extent. I've see, I've been sure. in turbulent, but, but to dropping like that, I, I yes. don't think it's knock on wood. That's scary. No. <laughs> The rugby players joked after this, saying the turbulence, they thought was just turbulence at first until some passengers saw that the aircraft was so close to the mountain, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Passenger Nando Parado recalled, quote, that was probably the mo- moment when the pilot saw the Black Ridge rising dead ahead, end quote. Oh, my Lord. So in an attempt to get out, the tail hit the mountain, causing so much force that the tail was actually detached from the fuselage taking the last two rows of seats, the galley, the vertical and horizontal stabilizers with it, leaving a huge hole in the back of the plane. Five on board were lost in the tail, or that were in the back of the plane at the time that were lost. And as the plane began to jump kind of around, lose altitude, the wing hit the mountain and it was detached. 
The front of the plane landed on a slope and traveled almost 2,400 feet at 220 miles an hour before actually impacting a snowbank, immediately killing the pilots, right? And two other passengers because of that impact was so going so fast and it's such force and such yeah. speed that, you know, that all of a sudden a stop is going to kill some people. So of the 40 passengers and five crew members that were on board, 12 were killed and another five would pass within hours due to their injuries from the crash. Survivors who made their way out of the plane found themselves alone in the middle of nowhere. The only thing in sight was snow and mountains. They grabbed everything that they could, food, clothing, whatever, and took shelter inside of the cabin of the fuselage in the middle of a blizzard. Medical student Canessa and another medical student, Gustavo Zerbino, quickly assessed the survivors from fractures to abrasions. Most of the wounds they were able to treat with what they had. Nando Parado had a skull fracture and was in a coma for three days. Enrique Platero had a piece of metal stuck in his stomach. And when they removed it from his stomach, small parts of his intestines came out. But Platero immediately, as soon as they took the metal out, began to help other passengers who were also injured. I'm I'm just shocked that there is anybody alive at this point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That impact alone is 220 miles an hour. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Canessa wrote a book called, quote, I Had to Survive, How a Plane Crash in the Andes Inspired My Calling to Save Lives. Canessa would describe the scene when the plane hit the mountain, how his body launched forward, he struck his head. He thought this would be the end, and he recalled hearing passengers praying for God's help. One passenger said that he was blind, and when Canessa looked over, he saw the man's brain spilling out of his head. Oh my god! What? And he was awake, and he was... But if you think of the force and the impact, right? Wow. So, I mentioned a blizzard when they crashed, right? Mm Mm-hmm. When the plane finally stopped, all of the rows of seats were pushed forward towards the front of the plane. So, uh, the the seats came out of their lockdown position. They all, everything moved forward. Mm -hmm. Screams began to fill the air, and the smell of jet fuel was overbearing. The plane was torn in two. The tail of the aircraft was nowhere to be found. Okay, so survival. The first night took five more lives. In order to keep out the weather, because they were in a blizzard, Mm -hmm. some of the passengers used broken seats, luggage, anything that they could get their hands on to close off the opening in the back of the fuselage to close off the wind, the snow, and everything. They got creative. Fido Strouch, a gentleman, used a sheet of metal. And you probably might remember this from the movie. I remember this um, when I was reading it. He used a sheet of metal from one of the seats and placed snow on it put it outside in the sun, Mm -hmm. the snow melted, turned into water, and then they would put that water in empty wine bottles. Right. So they would have water. They removed part of the seat stuffings, which were made of wool to help with warmth. They made snowshoes out of the seat cushions. They were creative for sure. Mm -hmm. Most of them had never seen snow before, let alone now they're stranded in it. Mm -hmm. Never experienced high altitude, high altitude sickness Mm -hmm. sometimes that comes like in in how you have to conserve your energy because you're at such a higher altitude. And while they were two surviving medical students, they just did not have the supplies and just had to make do with what they had with the people's injuries. Wow. They all thought it wouldn't be long before they would be rescued. They thought somebody was coming. They took their suitcases out, made a cross on the ground, made a SOS out of footprints in the snow, believing that there would be planes flying overhead and somebody would see them. Now, they did hear some planes within, within a couple days of the crash, but no one landed and no rescue was in sight. When Parado awoke from his coma, he realized that his mother was killed and his 19-year-old sister was severely injured. After about a week, she did succumb to her injuries, his sister. 
Some of the passengers were able to build a makeshift radio after finding a small transistor radio and improvising an antenna with some of the scraps around. Mm -hmm. A gentleman named Piers Paul Reed, one of the survivors, wrote a book, also wrote a book, and said this one was called Alive, the Story of the Andes Survivors. In his book, he wrote this. Mm-hmm. Quote, the others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news, Roy was the gentleman who made the radio, they began to sob and pray, except Parado. Parado looked calmly into the mountains, rose to the west. Gustavo came out of the aircraft, seeing their faces, he knew what they had heard. Gustavo climbed through the hole back into the fuselage, through the wall of suitcases, crouched down at the mouth of the dim tunnel, looked at the mournful faces which were turning towards him. Hey boys, he shouted, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio they've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft, there was silence and hopelessness, and their predicament just started to envelop. They wept, and they're like, why the hell is that good news? Paez, one of the survivors, angrily shouted at Gustavo, and Gustavo said, because it means that we're going to get out of here on our own. The courage of this one boy actually prevented a flood of total despair amongst the survivors. Okay, let's talk about cannibalism. Mm. As I mentioned earlier, they gathered the food that they could to keep for rationing, In total, there were eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, candies, dried plums, and several broken bottles of wine, which is a crime in (laughs) itself. (laughs) They divided the food to make it last as long as they could, one even making one candy bar. He made that last for three days. Within a week, even with all the rationing, they were out of food. There was no natural vegetation. There were no animals. There was nothing around that they could eat besides the snow. Some of them actually started to eat cotton and leather from the seats. Right. But they tried to eat it and it made them sick. Knessa tried to encourage everybody and he recalled that survival was their only goal. And as many of them had to survive as possible. With the knowledge of no rescue, no food, they all faced death. The remaining survivors at this point all agreed, if you die, I want you to eat my body. Wow. So so uh, people were saying that, like, if I die, mm -hmm. just take my body, like, survive. my body, yes. Okay. With no choice, they were forced into cannibalism. Knessa said the answer was too terrible to to contemplate, and they agonized on this decision for days. And we'll get into that because Mm. the initial public reaction was horrible. Yeah. The passengers were all Roman Catholic. They had religious fears that they would go to hell. Yeah. That it would damage their souls mm-hmm. or the, the souls of the people that they were eating, their family and friends. But they had to do something. Mm-hmm. They were all going to die. Yeah. So Knessa was the first. Being a medical student, having some medical background, he decided that he would be the first. He used broken glass as a knife to cut the flesh. Several mm-hmm. others followed suit, and he was cutting pieces off for others. The next day, even more people kind of gave in and yeah. started to eat the flesh. Some, understandably, were not able to keep it down at first. Yeah. Parado protected the bodies of his mother and his sister, and they were never eaten. Oh. Initially, the survivors could only stomach the flesh, the skin. They would dry the meat out in the sun, so it was a little bit more palatable, mm-hmm. a little easier to eat. And as they continued to eat, they started to consume muscle and fat, realizing that the nutrients in there were probably a little bit better for them than the heart, lungs, and sometimes the brains. Mm. And technically, chatters, this is not cannibalism. What do you mean? Cannibalism is more of a sinister term. Okay. Where it's used for eating body for pleasure. Right. To feed some sort of need. It's called anthropophagy. Anthropophagy. It's called anthropophagy. You got another medical term. I know. Okay. (laughs) In chatters, I spelt it out so I would pronounce it right. That took a minute. (laughs) Anthropophagy. Okay. Okay, so... Technically what it's called when you're having to do it for survival. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. But none of them would see what would be next. 
as if the crash wasn't enough, a blizzard resulting to having to eat each other, the survivors endured an avalanche. What? On the 17th day, an avalanche swept over the crash site, sweeping away the bodies that they were consuming because the bodies were outside. Yeah. So it took away their food. However, it would also take another eight passengers' lives as they slept inside the fuselage. Because it, it happened around midnight. Oh, my God. On October 29th, the avalanche buried the wreckage, filled the interior with snow, and trapped the survivors inside with, like, a three meter by three meter. My God. So they were, like, compacted even more so with one another. And there were also eight people who had died that were in that compacted area with them. It's like they were buried alive. Exactly. I would give up at this point. I would be like, uh, you know what? It's just, I'm designed to die. It is what it is. I would, oh. So Parado found a metal pole from like a seat or something that was kind of some of the scrap that was laying around and ended up poking a roof for the top of the fuselage. Mm -hmm. So they could see maybe what was, around but also for ventilation because they were going to suffocate as well if they didn't get air it took two days to dig a hole to the surface from the cockpit from the front of the plane however as soon as they did another blizzard came through and knocked them back inside are you kidding me these poor people yeah they remained inside for another three days and with a few of those who did not survive the initial avalanche they began to eat the flesh of their recently deceased friends like they weren't they were freshly. It, they were stuck inside with them. They were and stuck they inside were with them. And they were eating them while they were, it's not like they were able to cook them and then walk away. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, the expedition. They get out. They venture out, right? Once they were able to make their way out of the fuselage, Canessa and Parando, with two others, decided to make a trek to try and find help. They knew that the search had been called off. They were like, we need to do something. We're going to die. Around November 15th, they found the tail section of the plane, about a mile east of the crash site. They salvaged what they could to include warm clothes, socks, there was a box of chocolates, a pack of sugar, three meat patties, a few of somewhat edible moldy sandwiches that they took. They also found cigarettes, comic books, some medicine, a two-way radio, and they set up camp in the tail section for that night. They continued their walk and had their first night outside the following day. Uh Nearly freezing to death, they decided to go back to the tail. They wanted to remove the aircraft batteries and take them back to the fuselage where the initial main crash site was and help power up the radio for an SOS call. Upon returning back to the tail, they realized that the batteries were too heavy. They couldn't take it to the fuselage. Mm -hmm. So instead, they returned to the fuselage and then would take apart the radio system and then try to bring it back to the tail section. Not knowing this at the time, they got back to the tail and realized it was different voltages. They could It was impossible from the beginning. These poor people. They discovered three more survivors. After going back to the fuselage, three more survivors had succumbed to their death. Two by gangrene and one from malnutrition. The guy that died from malnutrition was the last one to consume right. flesh. And he weighed 55 pounds. <gasps> oh, my yeah. God. Okay. Oh, my God. So on December 11th, remember this was Friday the 13th, we're almost two months into it. December 11th, the remaining survivors heard on the radio that Uruguayan Air Force going to resume a search for them. Canessa and Parando knew they had to try again, and this time they tried to get to the peak of the mountain. They made it to the peak on December 12th with another survivor, Antonio Vincentin. He, he went by Tintin. They trekked another 10 days and 38 miles. Knowing they were somewhere near Curico, which was on the west end of the Andes Mountains, they thought that they would be able to see the green valleys of Chile to the west. Mm-hmm. 
And once they made it there, Canessa realized that they saw, again, nothing but mountain peaks and snow in every direction. They climbed a mountain on the border of Argentina and Chile, meaning the trekkers were still tens of kilometers away from the green valleys of Chile, which they were trying to get to. On the next morning, the three men could see that the hike was going to take much longer than they originally planned. They were running out of food, so Tintin agreed to return to the crash site where the fuselage was. The return was entirely downhill, so they used an aircraft seat as a makeshift sleigh. It took him an hour. So if you think all the, it took him like 10, however many days, right, to climb up this mountain, it took Tintin one hour to get back because it was completely downhill. Oh. So he li- literally had a, a sleigh ride for oh an hour. Oh my God. As Canessa and Perando, the two men that were left, ventured out again, they walked about 10 days later, they found a spot with grass and water. They walked for 44 miles before they found someone who could help. 70 days after the initial crash, they finally found civilization. All right, let's talk about the rescue. Mm. Gradually, there appeared more and more signs of human presence. First, uh, some evidence of camping. Finally, on the ninth day, some cows. And as the men gathered wood to build a fire, one of them saw three men on the other side of a river on horseback. Parado called out to them, but the noise of the river made it really impossible to communicate. If you can imagine, like if you've ever been that, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that you can't, because there's so much other sound, it's that the sound you're projecting doesn't get to where you want it to go. So one of the men across the river did see Parado and Canessa and shouted back tomorrow, or word, worded tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Basically, we'll be back tomorrow. So the next day, the man returned. He scribbled a note and attached it in a pencil to a rock, threw the rock across the river, and Parado answered it and sent it back. So this is Parado's response. It's translated from Spanish. Quote, I come from a plain that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. I have been walking for 10 days. I have wounded friend up there. In the plain, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get them out here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you coming to fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? End quote. Wow. That was his, like, plea for help. So Sergio Catalin was the Chilean herrero, or muleteer, who was communicating with them. He read the note and gave him a sign that he understood. Catalan threw bread to the men from across the river and then rode on horseback westward for about 10 hours to go bring help. They were able to lead rescuers to the site where the remaining survivors would be saved. They relayed news of the survivors to the Army Command in San Fernando, Chile, who contacted the Army in Santiago. Meanwhile, Parado and Canessa were brought on horseback to Las Mientes de Quirco, where they were fed and allowed to rest. Once news broke that there were survivors, reporters from all over the world like flooded the, that mm-hmm. area, went to that area, and they were wanting interviews with Parado and Canessa to find out what happened. So December 22nd. The Chilean Air Force provided three helicopters to assist with the rescue. Parado volunteered to lead the helicopters to the crash site. He had guided the helicopters up the mountain to the location of where the remaining survivors were. One helicopter remained behind in reserve. The pilots were astounded at the difficult terrain that the two men had crossed to reach help. The steep terrain only permitted the pilot to touch down with a single skid. You know what a skid is? The basket that rescuers, like if you have a helicopter flying, the skid is the thing where the, yeah. Due to the altitude and weight limits, the two helicopters were only able to take half of the survivors. Four members of the search and rescue team voluntarily stayed behind with the remaining survivors, and they stayed for one more night. 
The second flight of helicopters arrived the following morning at daybreak. They carried the remaining survivors to hospitals in Santiago for evaluation. They were treated for a variety of conditions, including altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. Oh my God. As if this wasn't enough. <laughs> we're going to talk about the aftermath and public reaction. When word got out that they ate other passengers, there was severe backlash. Rumors circulated that the survivors had killed some of the others for food and resorted to cannibalism. The Catholic Church even condemned their actions. Their survivors held a press conference on December 28th, realizing this bad publicity and kind of set the record straight. Once it was explained that they used it, they actually used it as an act of communion mm -hmm. for survival. They were, you didn't take right. it, make this decision easy, right? You used it as, a, as an act of communion. The public also understanding the agony that they had faced in consuming their family and friends, they gave in to the situation. And Knesset took it upon himself to meet with the family members of the deceased, bring them letters that their loved ones who initially survived the crash but had succumbed to their yeah. injuries, they, they wrote letters. So Knesset brought the letters to the loved ones, and he found that all of the family members were forgiving, and they understood that surviving was more important. And that's what I'm talking about. I am... I'm blown away by Knessa. I am bl blown away. Yeah. Oh my gosh! By the yes. fact that from the beginning, middle, and the end, this person had <clears throat> some way was a leader mm -hmm. and moved it. For, if if there was if there was an opportunity to save them, he did it. If there was yes. an opportunity to figure it out, he did it. And yes. it may not be the the what you wanted to do, like eating other passengers, but yeah. It seems like the reason why anybody survived was because of this person. So, wow. A lot of a lot of them did, <laughs> yeah. And there, there's several people who wrote. And as I was doing the research, obviously his name kept coming up. Uh -huh. I mean, but there were 12 total survivors. It it is a kind of a memorial there now. And I've got some pictures that I'll post on the Patreon of what it looks like now. But it was a collective decision from the deceased family members that they decided to bury the remains at the site. They didn't take any of the deceased away. They, they did collect them and put them in the same gravesite area. Right, right. 13 of the bodies were nearly untouched, while another 15 were nearly skeletal. 12 men and a Chilean priest were transported to the site on January 18, 1973, I don't know why, but family members were not allowed to attend. It could have been just because of the terrain, mm. maybe. They dug a grave far enough away from any future avalanche to kind of destroy it, but they built a stone altar, erected an orange iron cross, and there's a place on the pile of rocks that says, quote, the world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O oh God, to you, end quote. They lit the pile on fire and only the charred airframe remains. But there is an iron cross, orange cross, that you can see. And I've got a picture of that that I'll post. Wow. So that is the story. So out of the survivors, how many were the rugby team? Do we know? Or is it was it all the rugby team? So, were they the ones that survived? Yeah, for the most part. there I, I believe it was only members of the rugby team that survived. I mean, it could have been because they were in really, really good shape. They were young. Yes. Yeah. You know, 19, wow. 20 years old. I don't believe any of the crew survived. Hmm. Now the one co-pilot who was it was his error he survived actually the initial impact the the mm -hmm. the colonel the main pilot died on impact the co-pilot survived but didn't he passed away I think probably that night wow that's a story that will challenge your inner core yes it will 
I mean, I remember when the movie came out mm. and watching the movie, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I also had a different, I think, mentality, you know, what was that, 30 years ago, 1993? Mm-hmm. So... I think I had a different mentality then too and not quite understanding, especially realizing scientifically, medically, it wasn't actually cannibalism. Right, but right. we haven't really talked about cannibalism too much though. A little bit, but not a whole lot. No. It's something, lack of better words, something that's hard to stomach. I think this whole like act of eating another's flesh just challenges us internally, whether mm-hmm. you're religious or you're not religious. It doesn't matter. Like if, if yeah. you're a religious person, you're challenged. If you're not yeah. religious, your challenge like it challenges you on every aspect so wow like like even like I can understand and I not that I can understand but I'm sitting here going okay the way you're the way you're describing it the way you're kind of telling me the story I'm like all right I can understand that this was the only thing that they can do to survive but mm-hmm. at the same time if I was in that situation would you just die or would you take something in order to live another day like yeah and if that person is saying if I die tonight I'm telling you to consume my body consume me yeah to survive get out of here like oh my god wow I I think it does take a a certain mentality to the will to survive is a thing Mm. it's a real thing when you get put in certain situations how did you survive that that's insane there was no food there was no vegetation fight or flight I mean they like that's you don't know you don't know what you're capable of to your challenge in that situation yeah then you may be a you might be somebody like the who are the two gentlemen that so can Canessa and Parado are they still alive yes wow they are well at least Canessa is I saw something on him recently people are still talking about this there was an interview that was in like 26 2018 something like that mm-hmm. and they're still giving interviews so Canessa actually turned out he's a doctor now he finished his medical career and obviously this was something that yeah an unforeseen circumstance but he was already a medical student so he kind of already knew what he wanted to do but it just kind of confirmed his will god help me thank god thank yeah. god he was yeah. Medical student. Thank God he had that need to, I mean, God bless him. Crazy story. Cat, this is challenging. This is, this <laughs> Chatters, what do you think? What would you do? What would you do, Chatter? Well, I don't know. I, I guess, you know what, if I die, consume me, but to make sure it's with the, with the summer low. <laughs> okay. I am best palatable with, <laughs> with some, a margarita. With a hard shard. <laughs> hard shard. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Like, it's just such an unreal story that yeah. this shit happens. And and it was 50 years ago, 1972. Wow. Yeah. And it happened on Friday the 13th. And it happened on Friday the 13th, the crash. So when you said accidents mm. and other natural disasters, I was like, what? I wonder, do you think the Mothman showed up around there? Ooh, I don't know if they could see anything. It was in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> he was probably saying, hey, dude, I'm over here. Go away. <laughs> go away. Go run. <laughs> oh, my God. That was a good story. That was a really good yeah, story. Hey. That definitely challenged yeah. me internally. I'm going to watch that movie again. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I need to see it again. Now that you've identified those two kind of people that helped, so basically saved everybody else. Well, yeah, and there were other, there was another gentleman, I don't remember his name, who was kind of deemed as the leader. He did end up passing away um, as far as the one that was in charge of rationing out food. And, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. it's a, It was an interesting story. There was so much more, but I did highlight Parado and Canessa because I feel like that's just where I found the most information on. Yes. You know? 
And it's funny how, like, well, you said in the beginning, like, it's not a crime, it's a story, but you know what? Stories like this challenge me more than a crime because now, you know, crimes are dark, but in a crime, there's a beginning and an end. Yeah. There's no ending here. Like, these people literally had to find a way to survive after surviving hell on earth and yet go home and be judged and somehow, like, somehow find a way, Mm -hmm. and they did, so. And luckily it didn't, like, the initial reaction was very hard backlash, but at least it didn't last. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They, They had even the courage. Yeah. After being rescued, to do a press conference and set the record straight and just be like, it wasn't an easy choice. No. You do what you got to do to survive. Oh, my God, chat. All right. So because we don't want to leave you hanging, chatters, uh, we're going to have more information on that after that crime chat. Yes, and I will list the resources, the books I mentioned. Um, I'll Mm. put those in there. And pictures. Yes. Don't forget to follow us on Crime Chat with Nat Cat on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok to see what we have coming up. Right. And just so you know, we have the on the Patreon. If you subscribe, we have currently a subscription prize happening, yeah. which is the murder scene makeup a murder, which is an eyeshadow palette. And if you subscribe right now, right we now. have one more left. We have one more left. One more. Like one more, okay? And if we have, I mean, we're going to run it till June 12th. Yes. My birthday. It's birthday. So be sure to check out the next episode. It is um, a little bit of... I'm g- Girl, let me tell you something. Sinful spirits. Okay, it's wacky, but yeah. you, you gave me chills from the story. <laughs> so sinful spirits <laughs> is like, what the fuck? <laughs> Yes, it's going to be a sinful spirit story. So next time, chatters, make sure you get your favorite drink ready. Get your cozy socks and we will keep the crime chat train on its tracks. Yes, we will. You don't want to miss it. We'll see you at the next crime chat. Bye, chatters. Bye, chatters. Bye. Bye.